welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So today's podcast, I'm going to actually cover three topics. We're going to talk about something Glenn Beck said this week. We're going to talk about um, three crops in American agriculture and the Black Sea deal, which uh, grain deal, which we've not talked about before, and I'm going to update you guys on. And then the last thing I'm going to talk about today is the state of theology in the United States with specifically U.S. evangelicals. And we'll close out the show talking about that and why I'm talking about it on a podcast that primarily I do mostly politics. I a lot of times do kind of get down into the words some, but uh, that that last topic may veer off more into a theology, but it's going to circle back around, so hang with me when we get to it. So very first of all, Glenn Beck. So Glenn Beck has been a staunch champion of the Constitution and conservative causes for several years, I mean, all, all of my life, uh, that I've been involved with politics. I mean, as far back as I can remember, back into my teenage years when I began to engage in politics, Glenn Beck was seemingly on the scene, and he's been very effective. This is why Glenn Beck's support for what he called a convention of states or a constitutional convention was so damaging and contrary to the philosophy of limited constitutional government he otherwise espoused day after day on his radio show, on Blaze TV Network, in many of his books. But this week, Beck reversed that, and he had a reversal from supporting the CONCON idea which is a huge defeat for the effort to call a convention to consider changes to the U.S. Constitution. Because advocates for the CONCON often cite Beck and other people known to be devotees of constitutionalism as reasons to back a constitutional convention or convention of states. Those two words are used interchangeably. Let me read to you some of what he said on his radio show this past week to... Uh, just kind of describe that he used to describe why he's he's making this decision. So Beck explained why he's come to realize that calling for a convention to consider amendments to the Constitution is a bad idea, at least at this time. He said this, quote, After some thought and prayer, we are not the people to open up this sacred document. We are not the people. That was a God-inspired document, end quote. Beck added that even Benjamin Franklin, who's considered perhaps the least religious of the Founding Fathers, viewed the document as divinely written. After arguing that the very hand of God was involved in the writing of that document, Beck noted that today we do not have the giants of the Founding Generation. Quote, Do you believe that we could send delegates to a convention today that would have that kind of inspiration? That when we got to an impasse, somebody would be there like Ben Franklin that would say, Let's pause and all go to church and pray. They didn't politic, they prayed. Of course, this backs a lot of my concerns that I've shared with y'all in the past. I had a podcast a few months ago that talked about, I think it's eight reasons why a constitutional convention is not a good idea. If you want more about that, I describe what a constitutional convention is, why some people believe it's a, a good route to take, and then I provide a bunch of reasons why I don't think it's a good thing to do. And some of that, Beck is hitting on 
right now and, and right right here in these statements this week and of course it's backed this uh, this echoes the sentiments of the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia who opposed holding a constitutional convention in our present political environment contending and he said that this was a poor century in which to write a constitution so Beck has now joined a long list of conservative figures who opposed holding a convention, including Phyllis Schlafly, uh, Senator Barry Goldwater, former President Ronald Reagan. So in Beck's announcement, though, he said he would support a convention if the American people were restored to a proper moral grounding and respect for limited government. But Steve Bias had a great question at the end of his report when he was covering this topic. And he said this, quote, if a moral resurgence were to happen and members of Congress were held to their oath to support and follow the Constitution, then why would we even have such a Constitution, such a convention? Why would we even have or need such a convention? And he's right. Why would we need it if a moral resurgence were to happen? and members of Congress were held to their oath to support and follow the Constitution, why would we need to make any amendments? Why would we need to open up the Constitution and try to rein these guys in that way? Because that's that's why a lot of folks say we need to have a constitutional convention so we can run away, so that we can rein in a runaway Congress. Well, if there's a moral resurgence, then we shouldn't need to. Beck's reversal, though, I agree with this. Bias also kind of made some statements similar to this at the end of his report, and I agree that I'm really hoping this will lead other prominent conservative commentators to follow in his footsteps and offer a reversal and rethink the support for a constitutional convention. Uh, Steve Dace is one of the guys that I like to go to. He's not everybody's cup of tea. I get that. He can be pretty crass and, uh, and that kind. Of, he's pretty rough around the edges, but he has such an in-depth, behind-the-scenes understanding of how politics and how the sausage is made in the United States. And uh, he's a huge supporter of a constitutional convention. Absolutely huge. And I'm really hoping that this might change um, Steve Dace and some of these other guys' perspective on ha calling a constitutional convention and that they'll have the humility that Glenn Beck had uh, to do a, have a pub announce a public reversal. Because Beck is to be commended in that he did not allow professional pride to keep him from renouncing his previous posi position. Okay, so I want to move on to talking about the state of U.S. crops. Specifically, I want to talk about corn, soybeans, and cotton. And I don't have a lot to say about it. I just want to give you some updated um, percentages and production numbers. So the, U the recent U.S. Agricultural Department, USDA, crop production report showed that corn, soybeans, and cotton production is down from 2021. Not a really big surprise. The, USD, the USDA reported corn production is down 8% from last year, forecast at 13.9 billion bushels. Soybean growers are expected to decrease their production 1% from 2021, forecast at 4.38 billion bushels. And cotton production is down 21% from 2021 at 13.8 million 480 pound bales. So bad weather has played a, a big part in the reduced harvests in large crop-producing regions. 
Add that to the impact of the war in Ukraine, which has fueled inflation with higher food prices around the world. But let me alleviate some of the stress of that, at least for right now, by telling you about the Black Sea grain deal. And this was struck between Russia and Ukraine earlier this summer. I haven't heard a whole lot about it, and so I want to let you know what that was, and it's just really brief, and then bring you up to speed on where it's at right now. So this deal was struck back in July, and it has enabled, enabled more than a million tons of grain trapped in Ukrainian silos to be exported via the Black Sea. Uh, Archer Daniels Midland CEO, Juan Luciano, he shared with the Wall Street Journal at a September 7th investor conference that between March and August, Ukraine exported about 40% of the grain it would normally ship in that particular period. Under the Black Sea grain deal this summer, the country has shipped about 60% of what it has done in past years, according to Luciano. And for September, he said it would it could improve further to be closer to even 80 or 90%. Unfortunately, though, the bad news, the Black Sea grain deal is... Uh, I mean, of course, it's rather fragile. I, that's not a surprise because of the uh, just the dispute, the volatility between Russia and Ukraine. And specifically, Russian officials have indicated that they're unhappy with the terms. They don't think it's brought them. They had a benefit that they were supposed to receive regarding fertilizer and the transportation of fertilizer that they are exporting. And they don't believe that they've seen the benefits that they were promised. So the current Black Sea grain deal is set to expire in late November. And obviously, if not renewed, it will add to the pressure already on global food stockpiles. So here, here's what I'm telling all of you guys. We need to be in prayer for spe specifically for this deal and that it would be extended. If the current state of U.S. crop production is something you're following and concerned about, specifically those three crops, uh, be on the lookout for what happens with the Black Sea deal come November, and I will try to be doing the same and keep everyone updated. This is Bob, the producer of The Hannah Miller Show. Hannah and I would like to thank you for subscribing, favoriting, sharing, liking, and everything else you can do for a podcast that makes this podcast so successful. As you probably know, Hannah and I are both based out of South Carolina. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll find very enjoyable and educational. It's called South Carolina Politics. The topics on this show range from county council and school board all the way up to the governor. Interviews, opinions, discussions, updates, and a lot more. So check it out wherever you find your podcasts. It's called South Carolina Politics. All right. What do Americans believe about God, salvation, ethics, and the Bible? So Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway Research partnered to find out. This is a survey that they do every two years. It's to take what they call the theological temperature of the United States. They do this in order to help Christians better understand today's culture and to equip the church with better insights for discipleship. If you want to see the full survey, you can go to thestateoftheology.com and... Um, 
I'm obviously not going to go through every aspect of it because it's quite lengthy. I'm going to pull a couple of percentages out, a couple of survey questions, and we're going to go through them. And it seems a little, you know, we're going to go through the bad and the ugly, and then we're going to go through the good. And my response to a lot of this that kind of seems alarming from the perspective of a U.S. evangelical, they did look in the survey at the adult population as a whole, and then they would look at what the U.S evangelicals believe. And so you could see those comparison numbers. I'm for the most, I'm entirely for today's podcast disregarding what the adult population as a whole believes about a lot of these questions. Because, you know, if, why would I really ask I guess just the the entirety of the U.S. population questions about the Bible and God and a biblical ethic. Uh, I know what they're going to say. I'm, and for the purpose of this show, more interested in what U.S. what the state is of U.S. evangelicals and the church. And so that's what we're going to focus on. So the very first question uh, that I want to talk about today is: Does God change? So the Bible very clearly teaches that God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things, and immutable, meaning he doesn't change. You can look those up, Isaiah 46.10, James 1.17, 1 John 3.20. But statement number four of the survey was this, quote, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. And 48% of U.S. evangelicals agreed. Almost 50% of U.S. evangelicals don't have a correct theology about the nature of God. And this was just one aspect. Again, they had uh, quite a few questions on the survey, and I'm only going to go through about five or six uh, right here, and then we'll talk about three or four more at the end. But so they don't have a correct theology about the nature of God, especially in regards to God's, God's omniscience and immutability. In Psalm 51.5 and Romans 5.12, the Bible teaches that all have sinned. Despite this, when given statement, number, statement 15, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, 65% of U.S. evangelicals agreed, which means 65% of U.S. evangelicals don't have a basic theology of sin or a basic, accurate, biblical theology of sin. In the scripture, Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yet 56% of U.S. evangelicals agreed with the statement that, quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. This shows a clear ignorance of really all three religions, And this is up from 48% in 2014. So it's risen about, or it's risen 8% since 2014. Another 43% of U.S. evangelicals believe Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, which contradicts teachings taught in John 1, 1, 8, 58, Romans 9, verse 5, and Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Here's what I did find interesting, though. So those are kind of just a few of the, uh, and of course, a lot of this is in alignment uh, with what the all adults numbers were. Um, They were slightly better, I I guess you would say, than the general population percentages. But these were the, this, the percentages for the U.S. evangelicals were pretty close to just the general population for American adults. Except for, well, what I did find interesting and actually gave me quite a bit of hope. 
was the percentage of U.S. evangelicals that agreed with statement number 16, which was, quote, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Only 26% agreed with that, which means 74% believe the Bible is literally true. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that kind of told me? That their poor theology, in other words, the incorrect answers to all the other questions, is due not to their total rejection of God and what the Bible teaches. No, it actually shows that they do not actually know God and His divinely inspired Word. Do you catch that differentiation? Do you, do you, are you picking up what I'm laying down here? 74% believe the Bible is literally true. So, why don't they believe what the Bible clearly teaches about the divinity of Jesus, the unchanging nature of God, and our need for salvation? Not because, in my opinion, they reject the Bible, clearly, since 74% believe in the Bible, but because they do not know what the Bible actually teaches on these topics. This is why theology matters. How can I say I believe I need Jesus as my Savior, Savior if I do not believe Jesus is the sinless Son of God and that I was not born a sinner? I dare say I would not, and therefore how would I have an accurate grasp of my standing before a holy God in my desperate need for a Savior? No wonder all their theology is off. They simply don't know what they claim to believe, the Word of God. They say that they believe the Bible is literally true, but they don't know the Word of God. Let me give you another example. 91 from this survey, 91% of US evangelicals believe abortion is a sin, up from 84% in 2014. 72% believe the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality applies today, and 94% agree that sex outside of marriage is a sin. Why do you suppose that on three of the hottest topics of my lifetime, abortion, premarital sex, and homosexuality, evangelicals are more in line with the scripture than not? Because over the last two decades, in my opinion, the church has honed in on these specific topics and taught a biblical ethic. Many of us, as a side note, have also seen firsthand in the lives of our family and our friends the consequences of poor choices in those categories. But when was the last time you heard someone preach on the immutable, omniscient nature of God? What about the divinity of Jesus? Huh? What about that all men are born sinners? I know. I know. <laughs> it's not nice to call people sinners, and it's especially not nice to call an innocent baby a sinner. But hang with me. It's not me doing it. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, for all have sinned. It doesn't say except newborns. Now, before you fly off the handle, I'm not going to get into a tangent about predestination and the age of accountability, but just know that whether, I mean, that would literally take weeks, but just know that whether or not young children and babies go to heaven is a topic that many brilliant theologians disagree on. Okay? A lot of really good men who genuinely love the Lord come down on different sides with this. And whether God in his mercy rescues them or whether God in his justice rejects them, there is much disagreement. But 
that the Bible says that all men, mankind are sinners, that is clear. Again, let me repeat that. It is clear that all mankind are sinners in the scriptures. But whether God in his mercy rescues them or whether God in his justice rejects young children and babies, we don't know the answer to that. We don't know. And brilliant men come down on different sides. So I just wanted to say that. Understand what I'm saying, though. Back to the survey. I know the word theology seems overwhelming to some. It kind of is off-putting doctrine, all of that. (laughs) I get it. But a biblical ethic is the fruit of a biblical theology. When we have a biblical understanding of the theology of God, Jesus, the Bible, the church, salvation, sin, etc., we can then form a biblical ethic. And when we have a biblical ethic, we can then rightly respond to the issues of our day. Look, if God can change, then his inspired word is outdated. Maybe God's changed his mind about homosexuality. And the scriptures don't contain his updated version. (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? What if God is not omniscient, all-knowing? Then how can he provide answers in his word for training in every good work? 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us the scriptures are God-breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But how can that be true if God doesn't know everything? How can he provide all the answers if he isn't all-knowing? Just these two examples punch a hole right through the reliability and authority of Scripture, a theology of the Bible that U.S. evangelicals actually say they adhere to. They say that the Bible is literally true. But how can it be literally true if it's outdated because God's changed his mind? How can it be literally true that it has all of the answers if God is not all-knowing? So which is it? Is it literally true or not? I mean, on the one hand, they said that God can change his mind, but they've said that the Bible is literally true. Those two things don't go together. And here's the thing. They don't know the answer to that question because they've never thought it all through. And that's where you and I come in. This gives us a clear direction on how to best disciple members of our churches. Remember, they believe in the literal truth of the Bible. They just need to be taught what the Bible says. Therefore, they desperately need a full, comprehensive biblical doctrine. They need to be taught how to biblically exegete the word and apply it to their own lives. We can do that, folks. We can do that. Find yourself a pastor who preaches the full word of God, both the seemingly boring topics and the controversial ones. I would also recommend uh, the two books, Know What You Believe by Paul Little. I haven't personally read that one, but it came highly recommended. I don't think it's perfect, but I've heard it's really good. And then the second one, A Survey of Bible Doctrine by Charles Ryrie. That was a book that I read when I was in high school, I think a senior in high school, and it's very digestible and it covers... Um, It's just, like it says, it's a survey of Bible doctrine. So it kind of does a a 30,000 foot, uh, you know, view of Bible doctrine. And it's excellent, very easy to to get through. It's not a very big book. In the book of Amos, though, God's word says this. 
He says, chapter 8, verse 11, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. My friends, let not this be said, that they could not find the word during our time because we neglected to teach them. Let it not be our fault. Let us bring the fountain of life to a perishing generation. And bringing today's podcast full circle. What does this this have to do with politics, Hannah? If we want to pull America out of its death spiral, Glenn Beck said it. We're not the moral people to do it. If we want to pull America out of its death spiral, we must regain our morality, our biblical ethic. And to do that, we must teach the word of God. It's hard, but it's not complicated. Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannamillershow.com.